This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Ladies and gentlemen, it is showtime. Please welcome the team of the Fulhamish Podcast. It's the Fulhamish Podcast, your independent voice of Fulham FC. My name's Sammy James. Welcome to the show. Today, we're going to be looking back at our Boxing Day defeat to Bournemouth. Ten goals in the last five games, none in the last three. What is this weird Fulham FC season that we're experiencing? We'll look back at... There were no real highs, just the lows of uh, Tuesday's defeat. We'll also look ahead to Arsenal. It doesn't get any easier uh, this coming weekend. And also, uh, we'll answer some of your emails and we'll go in a bit more depth at the FST minutes from their December meeting with the club. I'm joined as ever by Jack Collins. Hello, Merry Hello, Christmas. Hello, Sammy. Merry Christmas. It was a Merry Christmas, wasn't it, until we got to Boxing Day. Suddenly, it all looked a little bit a little bit darker, but indeed, we move onwards. And uh, no Peter today, but we're joined by the editor of Hammy End. You'll know him. It's been ages since he's been on the pod, far too long. Dan Crawford, hello. You're far too kind, Sammy. How are you, my friend? Good, thank you. Great to have you on. This all stemmed from us bumping into each other after the Burnley game. Uh, we walked back to Hammersmith. And I was like, when, wh- why are you not coming on the pod? And you were like, I was, you were like well, I'll come on whenever. And I was like, what about Wednesday? And you were like, yeah, sorted. So um, I did my pod bookings on the way back from the game. But um, yeah, lovely to have you on, Dan. Did you have a good Christmas? I did. Bar the Fulham. It was uh, pretty successful, to be honest. And... Maybe I hoped I'd be joining you under happier circumstances, but you know, we can't, beggars can't be choosers and all that. Yeah, 100%. Did either of you get any good Fulham clobber for Christmas? No, I didn't actually. Um, I didn't. Well, I've got some Fulham books. I'm not sure that counts as clobber unless we're using the broad definition of the word, but I can't, again, I can't complain about that, mate. What Fulham books? I've got them. I've got got the trifecta uh, this year the uh, Ken Coton, Martin Plum, Ed Vance and History of Craven Cottage, which is absolutely exceptional, um, telling me even things that I don't know about Craven Cottage. Um, the Tony Gale autobiography, um, which I'm sure some of you might might have read, um, and the uh, wonderful book by Tony Banks, or The Great Adventure, on sort of everything Mohammed al Fayed got up to or at least all the things that you managed to get past the lawyers, I guess. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I'm working my way. I've read, I've read one of them already. I won't tell my relatives uh, that one, although they'll probably know now. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm working my way through them. So, uh, yeah, I can't oh. complain. That's not a bad trio of, uh, of books there, Dan. All right, let's get into uh, some three-word reviews from the Boxing Day defeat at Bournemouth. Jack, what were your favourites? Well, Fulham DC said Nightmare After Christmas, which I thought was was pretty spot on, oh, yeah. to be honest. Uh, old Soul Bamba with Goalless This Christmas, with It'll Be in brackets, which I enjoyed. Random Fulham stuff came up with The Born Calamity. Steve Hazelwood, Two Christmas Crappers. Chris Jeter had Dropping Vitality Points. Scott Burley, I really like this. Zero Christmas presents spent, spelled P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E. Uh, Lee Warner nice. said, lacking goal-scoring vitality. Daniel FFC said, cherries on top. Uh, and Andrew Sherman said, burnt boxes, ball boy. <laughs> yes, I forgot all about the ball boy. We'll get into that um, later. I think that's when you know that uh, it's been a bad afternoon when your goalie picks on the uh, kid on the side of the pitch. Right, though. Let's... um. Let's dive into the match, Dan. Um, And I must admit, I thought Fulham started relatively positively in this, which I guess is similar to the uh, Burnley game, but it it all went pretty wrong pretty quickly and a bit of a shambles of an afternoon in the end. Yeah, I mean, you pretty much summed up all the positives we can take from from that particular 90 minutes in your your introduction, Sammy. Um, We were largely devoid of ideas. Um, going forward, um, we were pedestrian in possession. We looked very tired 
we're either very tired or very unmotivated. And I'm, I'm leaning towards the tired element because I don't think they had as much Christmas dinner as I did. Um, so I'm not sure there's any real um, ver- verifiable excuse that you can, you can give for this. And rather worryingly, I thought we were sort of outthought as well as um, outplayed. And yet I, I remember maybe it was the first time I came on your August institution and we just suffered a dreadful defeat at Sunderland and there were sort of murmurings against a particular manager. I mean, we all caution not to read too much into social media, but there was a very, there was an epic full of meltdown in the aftermath of this particular game uh, where some fingers were rather decidedly pointed at Marco and I I understand why people will be upset with the performance and looking for sort of scapegoats, but I'd caution against blaming the 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 man whose sort of extraordinary talent to coax uh, wonderful things out of very little uh, as being you know completely responsible for this utter shambles. I, I think we have to look elsewhere, but. No, it wasn't, you know, I decided to make the trip because I don't normally have better things to do on Boxing Day, but let's just say it wasn't one of my better decisions, Sam. Yeah, no, I did not envy anyone that made the trip down to the South Coast um, yesterday. Uh, I mean, Jack, in some ways, you know, this is a concerning defeat, but we have lost to the league's in-form side. And I think... Um, well, definitely you were in the camp. I was kind of like teetering towards that camp of Andoni Riola um, being a fraud. Um, he's definitely not a fraud. And this is a very good Bournemouth team that we've lost to. But nevertheless, we should, we could still show a little bit better than we did yesterday, no matter how good this Bournemouth team might be. Yeah, I mean, look, Iriola's done a really good job. And Bournemouth, I've said it on here before, have done very well to stick to their ideals, to not panic after a poor start to the season and allow him that time to develop a philosophy and to instill it in these players. And you can hear it from what the players are saying afterwards about the, you know, the pressing triggers, working together to to make that thing. I think the problem is that Bournemouth didn't feel like they worked particularly hard to beat us. And and that's actually where it gets a little bit uncomfortable. I thought Dan nailed it in terms of it wasn't devoid of effort. It was devoid of any sort of creativity in the final third. And once you start to lose that impetus, I didn't think from sort of the 10th, 13th minute onwards that Fulham were going to create anything. And the more that you allow that kind of feeling to foster, and especially to foster within your opponents who are in a good streak of form, who have the crowd on their side, etc. they start to be like, well, we can take more risks and we don't need to necessarily worry about getting caught so much at the other end because we know that there is nothing kind of coming at the sharp end from this Fulham team. And I think that's what happened. Bournemouth grew into it. They started to create Alex Scott just waltzing through the middle of the midfield. Now, lovely footballer. Let's not take that away from him. But he can't have the space to wander through that Fulham midfield in the way that he did there. It just isn't good enough but that's what happens when a team starts to get their tails up and starts to be like well I can take a risk from central midfield I can start to to dribble through and I think we looked soft yesterday and I agree I think we looked incredibly tired um my uncle texted me saying it looks like they've had the Christmas party the night out you know the game before this and that was it it was a bright enough start as you said Sammy but as soon as that started to falter there was nothing about that game that I was like oh Fulham are going to work their way back into this and look, we'll come on to it. But Marco Silva, wonderful manager and an absolute genius at the helm. We do have to look and he has to work out a solution to this issue that when Fulham go behind, there is almost nothing we seem to be able to do about it. And that's just so we're clear, not any sort of call for him to leave or anything. We're all not going down those paths, but that is something that he needs to look at and address. And I think that that's not weird to, to sort of bring up at this point. Dan, at the moment, I'm finding it incredibly difficult to work out this Fulham team. And a neutral looking at Fulham's results must be like, what are you? Because to go from 5-0, 5-0, and before that, you'd had the impressive display against Liverpool and the good win against Wolves, to this recent run of form, you know, 3-0 loss at Newcastle, 2-0 to Burnley, which is easily the, the absolute worst in there by a country mile, plus losing 3-0 yesterday. I I'm, I'm genuinely at the point now where 
my opinion of Fulham is I can't even work out if they're good or bad. Well, we're sort of mediocre, um, <laughs> as borne out by as borne out by the the league position. And I'll I'll expand on that a tiny bit. I, I think what we're seeing is we've got a fairly good first eleven, but when you're missing key players from that first eleven, we don't have the depth or the ability to change things up in the midst of a packed schedule like we have at the moment. And when you're relying on um, players who are, let's be honest about it, either in or approaching the twilight of their careers, they are going to find it a bit more difficult to produce the goods week in, week out, or a couple of days in or out. And I think we are reaping the whirlwind of something a little bit broader, which is... Mark, and I'm pleased to see that Jack isn't throwing another successful Fulham manager to the wolves. Um, but we are that. reaping. We are well. We can go there if you want, son. Um, we are we are reaping the whirlwind of something that has bedeviled Fulham managers of the past, which is Marco achieved magnificently to keep this squad well above water last season, and then the powers that be at Fulham felt it was enough to moderately invest in the squad uh, over the summer. That felt like a key point to look, say, we probably overachieved this summer, but if you don't capitalise on the momentum that you develop, other clubs and other teams will catch up with you or overtake you. And there's only so much Marco can do when the quality uh, or the depth of a, of a squad is not, is not really there. And, you know, it took a long time for somebody like Raul Jimenez to deliver what he can deliver in front of goal um, for, for a variety of reasons. But when he's not there and you're relying on two Brazilians who might be wonderful around the camp, they'd be brilliant at lots of things. They are not guaranteed to put the ball in the goal or to perform that, that lone striker role, which is one of the hardest roles to play in, in professional football. Um, and we were lacking invention, guile, and dare I say it, a little bit of motivation yesterday. And I think unless Silver gets the backing he deserves, then we are going to be relying on teams to be worse than us. And on any given day, as we've proven, we can be as bad as anybody um, in this division, unfortunately. But I mean, Jack, there's one thing to you know, bemoan the lack of depth. What we're, I can only think that we're missing two key players. I mean, I guess, you know, you go further back, there's a couple of players like Tim Ream and stuff, but Willian and Raul Jimenez, you look at who's missing for Bournemouth, Tyler Adams, Lloyd Kelly, Kirkes, um, they had Watara playing left, left back. back yeah. I, I mean, like, we're not the only ones here. And actually I'd say right now, okay, yes, Jimenez's suspension it was it was key, and maybe you couldn't have cherry picked two worst positions for Fulham to get some absentees in. But like, you know, you can say what what you want about the depth, but it's not that much of a crisis. No, and we've also spoken about the fact that you know Awobi off that left wing is slightly perhaps more dynamic in terms of transition than Willian is. He wasn't yesterday. Let's just be clear. But in terms of the way that he carries the ball and in terms of his transitional movement, he doesn't slow the game down as much as Willian does. Now, that doesn't make him a better or worse player. It's just a separate kind of stylistic issue. But I think, again, you know, to dive back into something that, that Dan brought up, and it's not the first time I've talked about this, this squad has too old an age profile. And part of this is due to recruitment focus. And I think that part of this is due to the fact that Marco Silva likes to play with players who have that experience, one within the division, but two within their careers. And sometimes the kind of fail safe against the reward of that, it does mean that players tend to be able to hold their heads in difficult situations. They have that nous about them at times in order to get results over the line, to know when to slow games down, when to speed them up, et cetera, et cetera. But when you get to a congested period like this, those rings in the legs, as I like to say, it's not necessarily how many years you've got on you, it's how many years you've been playing at the top level. And someone like Willian, for example, has been playing for a long, long time at the top level. You do start to slow down towards the end of that. And I think that what we're seeing in this point is that Fulham lacked a bit of that 
spark yesterday. I was a little bit surprised with the way that Marco set up in terms of not having two, you know, box to box midfielders and instead going for the sort of two advanced eights, tens in Kenny and Pereira. But you know, he also will point to that and say, well, we're lacking creative spark because we lack Willian on that left-hand side. And he's probably trying to compensate for that by having a bit more creativity in midfield. But we've talked about Tom Kearney's role in this side and how brilliant he has been, especially at home in terms of controlling games. It was going to be difficult to do that at any point in this game, considering one, how well Bournemouth are playing and two, the fact that Fulham are trying to do this without two players who have become very pivotal to the attacking patterns, the attacking movements that Marco Silva likes to instill within his teams. I think that when you kind of look at that as a setup, you think maybe there needs to be a bit more punch in that midfield as opposed to pizzazz. And we kind of lacked that, I thought, from, from the outset yesterday. It didn't help that Polina had a poor game and had, has had two poor games in a row now, which I can't remember happening at any point in his Fulham career up to this point. But... When he has that kind of poor game and you have to be able to be like, okay, he's so brilliant 95% of the time that when he does have a bad game, it's like, okay, everyone's entitled to, to an off day every so often. But it meant that Fulham looked woefully exposed in the midfield and the lack of ability to change that round or lack of ability to see that felt like it cost us dearly, especially in the second half yesterday. But I mean... Dan, let's, let's come on to the midfield because that first goal was so similar to the goal that Sanderberg scored. And I, I can't quite work out what's happened to Polinia. My only explanation is, is he having to do an awful lot of work without Harrison Reed alongside him? And, and I loved that kind of run of games that Kearney had in the eight. It was an inspired kind of couple of games that, that he had. And it felt like we'd maybe found an answer there. And now I'm wondering, hmm, Last season, Polina and Reed was a very, very consistent midfield pairing that, that gave so much protection to the defence. And I'm just wondering if maybe we should look to revert to that. And if we're going to have Kearney, it might have to be in replacement of Pereira in the 10. Yeah, I think you, the, the second part of what you've asked me is where I was going to go with this. There's two elements um, to this. Firstly, I think even Tom would admit that sometimes you have to manage his minutes, particularly if he's playing 90 minutes, followed by 90 minutes, followed by 90 minutes, followed by 90 minutes. He's, you know, not 21 anymore. Um, and I don't think you'll find three bigger advocates of Tom Kearney probably than the three of us over the time that, that we've been broadcasting, talking, writing about um, Fulham. But you have to factor that into the equation. You also have to factor in what, what Jack's saying um, that Xiao has been off it um, for the last couple of games. But I actually think the tone is set higher up than that. Um, Munez doesn't lead the press in a way that Silver is impressed with. You know, the first sort of 15 or 20 minutes of the last two games, and he's been gesticulating at Munez to do X, Y and Z. It feels like Pereira is in the team for two reasons. One, to be a creative player, which... You know, he's not had a good season. Um, I think, again, he would he would admit that. But he's also important in leading the press um, against the opposition. And he's not at the level uh, where he was last season. And he was at an exceptional level last season. So you can expect a drop-off um, to some degree. But I would just say to you, if you're looking to compose your midfield, um, it, you have to look at all elements of it. Both the the two central midfielders in the in the system that we play are pivotal. I was surprised that there wasn't a role for Harrison Reed, you know, in in the, in the starting lineup or at all. Um, yesterday, when when uh, push came to shove, um, I'm equally more surprised at the fact that you know Luke Harris has sat on the bench for the last two games. I, I, I've seen Luke Harris play an awful lot. He's a genuinely outstanding young prospect. We're getting to the point where, and he's committed to the football club. He signed a long-term contract. He's hung around even though he wanted to go out on loan. Uh, and, you know, the transfer chaos at the end of the last window prevented that from happening. He's committed to the football club. He's someone who can get on the ball and make things happen. There has to be a point where you trust a young player who's come up through your academy pathway when the established 
attacking midfielder isn't doing it. I'm not suggesting you could have brought him on after 65 minutes and he'd have led a glorious comeback yesterday because, you know, some things only Pele or Maradona can inspire, mostly in, in fictional movies um, these days. But um, Harris deserves an opportunity. But the balance of the entire midfield felt wrong. Um, I think against a team that's comfortable both in possession and out of possession, you need someone to hassle and harry them, and that's that's Harrison Reed. But also, I felt the shape and the and the and the eleven was the selection was strange. Bobby Decoradovery didn't have a good game on the right. Wobi felt wasted and isolated on the left. He's not as effective for me on the left side as he has been on the right side for us. And he's one of those players who's emblematic of the problem we've been having because he's been tried in virtually every midfield position since he arrived and we just found a slot that suits him it felt like we were not able to to match up to the challenge but we'd almost got through to half time and the incident that you that you reference Sammy I couldn't understand how Alex Scott gifted footballer though he is you know the three of us could have run 50 yards with the ball unencumbered up to the edge of the box and found a teammate with it. It was not particularly difficult. We made it look very easy. I was begging for the ghost of Stefan Johansson to appear and sort of put a halt to it. And sometimes you have to do that. Uh, And just to finish on Kearney, even when we got him the ball, he was doing all of his work inside our own half. It reminded me rather of like when Ross McCormack or Brian Ruiz, the talisman of, of failing teams, were dropping so deep to get possession in order to try and make something happen. They were orchestrating the play from 20 yards um, from their own goal. And then they weren't in the areas where we needed them to be when we constructed an attack, because we had a lot of the ball yesterday. We just didn't make it count. Some of that is on the fact that we couldn't hold the ball in forward areas, but a lot of that is we didn't progress the attacks to a point where they would hurt the opposition. Yeah, I mean, just to kind of go on from that, and uh, you know, to go back to the point about Bobby Decordova-Reed, I can understand why Marco dropped Harry Wilson considering his performance against Burnley, which I thought was was pretty poor. And you know that I'm a huge Harry Wilson advocate. And Bobby, for all of his good qualities, didn't shine yesterday. He he didn't he didn't affect the game. And there does come a point, I think, when you look at that and you realize that Watara is playing at left back. He's someone that you'd think, okay, maybe we can get some overloads into these areas. Maybe we can actually, you know, run at him. And Bobby spent a lot of time tracking back. And I think that's the, you know, the kind of half and half of it, six of one, half dozen of the other, in that we were and needed people to actually end up in these areas to try and stop Bournemouth marauding through this team. But equally, when we when we did get the ball and tried to move into transition, Bobby didn't seem to be able to get into any spaces or get any joy out of a player playing comfortably out of position and in a space where you go, you know, Watara, lovely footballer, wouldn't be like, oh, his defensive work rate is absolutely sensational, even as a winger. So Mm -hmm. for him to be at left back, and obviously he would have been given instructions and, you know, he played very well, I thought, in in terms of what he had to do. But you kind of look at that and think, well, where are we going to target them? The obvious answer is down that left-hand side or down our right-hand side. We need to have players in there in that channel who are going to make things happen. I would have made that switch earlier in order to try and get Harry Wilson into those areas. Or as Dan says, if a felt like he was being pushed out of the game on that left-hand side, then bring him over and try and get him the ball in those areas where he can run at a fullback playing out of position. So it, it just felt like it's absolutely spawn. It felt like everything was just off and I can't really put a finger on exactly why, but none of it felt right yesterday. And that's not a great place to be. You've also got to recognise that teams have had the opportunity to look at what we've done right in the, you know, over the last sort of December's been a relatively good month. You know, lest we forget, we thumped two teams five mil that I don't think any of us saw that coming. And we've got to a League Cup semi final, and none of those games looked easy on paper. 
So teams do adapt their tactics to what they're facing. And it does feel like the last two sides have had had our number. And the worrying thing is that we're quite predictable. Regardless of the personnel, you kind of know what Fulham's game plan is going to be and what they're trying to do. And I think that's allied to Jack's earlier point, which is when it's not quite working out, how quickly can we swift to a to a very different plan B and how can we accelerate that process? And just on Bobby, you know, he did get into two really good positions in the first 20 minutes in the Bournemouth area, but like every other Fulham player yesterday, they didn't seem to make the right decision in the final third. You know, a cross was over here. You know, Bobby had a chance to take a shot. At one point, he stopped running. You know, he's a tireless worker for the team. And I really don't want to scapegoat any of these particular players because they've been brilliant for us over a long period of time. It just felt like everything was not quite functioning. And at the level that we're at, when you're playing a team that's top of the form table, you're going to need almost everything to go for you when you're missing key ingredients in our sort of attacking arsenal. Sorry, I interrupted you, Sammy. That's fine. All that I, I was just thinking, Dan, when you were there was like, What's Niskin's Cabano doing right now? Can we uh, can we can we get on the fo- can we get on the phone, please? Because uh, I think a little bit of Niskin's wouldn't have gone down a miss yesterday. Um, obviously, just a bit of an NB from from yesterday's game. Look, we could go for every goal. But there's not a lot of point. Was the um, the Bert Leno incident? I mean, uh, first of all, he had a bit of a shocker for Clivert's goal. Although I still believe that. If you're going to let someone shoot from that close range and have that much of a free shot, as much as I think Bert will be disappointed, I was a bit like, well, you know, if you fired it in a point blank range, it's gone underneath you. I think I'm going to let that one slide. But the ball boy incident, Dan, was a a bit odd, um, to say the least. And uh, I felt a little bit rich, Fulham complaining about ball boys, when our ball boys have been specifically instructed to give the ball back slowly to the opposition and fast to Fulham. Um... I don't know. It was all just a bit weird. He he apologised after, and it was clearly a bit of a frustration in the heat of the moment. But uh, yeah, had had Eden Hazard um, flashbacks when when I saw that. Obviously, nowhere near that level of uh, of of wrongdoing from from Burn. But yeah, still a little bit odd and, and symptomatic, maybe of just a frustration in this side. Yeah, I think you know that something's gone badly wrong when we're talking about ball boys delaying. The game, you know, the ball boy wasn't the same as um, the ref at Rebecca Welsh wasn't the reason we lost to Burnley. That particular ball boy who did take his time in in, in resupplying that ball, you know, um, was not the reason at that point that we were 2 0 down. And you could tell Leno was visibly frustrated with himself for letting in the first goal. He wasn't the only individual culpable for for that. There are several who could, you know, be be up for uh, for interrogation if we were in a different era um, of how we dealt with how we dealt with defeats. But no, you're absolutely right. You know, um, all teams do this. They everyone looks for like marginal gains, and even if you're not instructed to do it, if you're a fan of the particular team. You know, you've got your moment and you do that sort of thing. Never having been a ball boy, I'm not aware of precisely what you're told. You know, I don't think Fulham could afford ball boys or even, you know, at the time that I was support, I was young enough to, to, to be one. But yeah, if anything was symbolic of how badly we ventured off the course that, that we'd charted for ourselves or hoped to to enjoy a Boxing Day. That was it. And the one thing that's the saving grace from all of this is Marco Silva is such a perfectionist, such a serial winner, someone who, you know, you could just see the sort of, the heat radiating out of him on the touchline um, from the position where I was sat, directly opposite the dugout. You could, I could just tell that he was going to absolutely tear into someone. Unfortunately, it wasn't the referee or any of the match officials. So he won't have to have another sort of suspension or anything like that. And as you both alluded to, it doesn't get any easier. We get, have Arsenal come to, come to Craven Cottage at the end of that sort of festive period. That's a big test, but it's also an opportunity for a, for a response against the footballing side. And, you know, we haven't done badly against Arsenal already this season. So, so hopefully we get the reaction there. 
Well, we'll uh, preview that in just a second. Just quickly before we uh, move on from Bournemouth, I did not realise how bad our record was against them. I knew it wasn't great, but I didn't know it was this bad. Um, we obviously didn't play them for 15 years after 99 um, because yeah, Bournemouth are in a much lower league. And we know about their rise to uh, to prominence. Um, I think that is now nine times that we've played them since 2014. Five defeats, three draws, just one win. And that one win was the... Uh, the, the the kind of relegation party that we had uh, down at Bournemouth after Fulham got relegated under Scott Parker where Mitrovic scored the penalty. I mean, Jack, I, I always like to think that we um we're all right against Bournemouth and and but actually when you look back at it, there's been some I mean there's been some horrible games and 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 yesterday right up there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's not a place we've enjoyed going and well proved itself again. It sometimes there are just inexplicable things. We talk about this, you know. Teams who completely change, managers change, records go on. And I think this might just be one of those for Fulham. So we'll uh, we'll draw a line under it and, and move on. Yeah, we'll take a break there. Afterwards, we'll look ahead to Arsenal. This is an advertisement for BetterHelp, a portal for finding online therapy. What's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you go for a run? Would you read more Fulham transfer rumours? Well, whatever it is, one thing that many of us have in common is wishing that we had more time. And therapy can be a place to help you work through what matters to you so you can have more time to do it. Therapy is great for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the very best version of yourself. It's not just for those who experience major trauma. And if that's something you're looking for, that's where BetterHelp can come in. BetterHelp is entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. They'll match you with a UK mental health professional with a wide variety of expertise. There's no referral needed and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge, giving you complete control over the whole experience. And Fulhamish listeners can get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash Fulhamish. That's betterhelp.com slash Fulhamish to get 10% off your first month. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Part two of the Fulhamish podcast. It's Sammy here with Jack Collins and Dan Crawford. Dan, I feel like you should um, have a couple of minutes to uh, tell people about uh, the Green Pole podcast, which Hammy N started. I felt like you started it, then it stopped, but then it's restarted again. Um, but yeah, another Fulham podcast that people should go check out. You're very kind, Sammy. It's rather like our season, a bit stop-start and, you know, you don't quite know what's <laughs> happening in the middle of it. Um, so the, the, this, this podcast um, was a long-standing ambition of, of some of my colleagues um, at Hammy and, and started really by Alan Drewitt during the lockdown where I, for one, couldn't attend games. Um, and so he convened a group of people to, like, have a Zoom call, you know, how we were getting through the lockdown, seeing people. Nobody could. Uh, go to games at one point. Um, and so we felt it was just somewhere to have a have a chat about Fulham. And we're quite cognizant of the fact that we write sort of reams and reams of words on a screen. And that's not how everyone wants to access their their sort of Fulham fix. We're, not, we're by no means as, uh, as polished or as erudite as, as yourselves, um, but we do our best to contribute to the community but it is a lot of hard work previewing and reviewing each game, particularly when, you know, you're not as jazzed up to do it um, as when you've gone all the way to Bournemouth on Boxing Day and come all the way back. But we try and, uh, and cover all, all the Fulham teams and, and a bit of the Fulham news, but in a light-hearted way, shall we say. Yeah, um, make sure you check it out. Uh, search for The Green Pole in whatever podcast app you use for and uh, and add it to your Fulham rotation. Absolutely necessity uh, for me. Right, let's look ahead to um, Arsenal on New Year's Eve. I like New Year's Eve football. I- I've said it for a long time. I don't love Boxing Day football. I know it's a long-standing tradition and I just got to suck it up, but I don't love Boxing Day football, but I can get on board with New Year's Eve football. There just feels like something nice about going out to the footy, 
getting home and celebrating New Year's Eve however you want to. And it was particularly nice last year when we beat Southampton uh, in the final minute. If we can get uh, one or three points, Jack, it'll certainly make it a very nice New Year's Eve. Obviously going to be quite difficult, but we did get uh, a good point and a good performance at the Emirates early this season. And... My hope is that um, with with Jimenez returning, we'll wait and see if uh, what the status of, of Willian is. Plus a, a few days for Marco in the you know Tuesday to Sunday, there's a little bit of a gap to uh, to get some work done. I, I feel like there might be a performance from us. Whether that leads to a result, obviously that's going to be very difficult. But I, I feel like there'll be a reaction. Yeah, it's a one. It's a weird one, isn't it? Because we always seem to give Arsenal a bit of a game at the Emirates. And then they often come to Craven Cottage and steamroll us. It's just mm. been a sort of weird niche of the last couple of years and the last couple of Premier League seasons. So I don't want to put Debbie Downer on everything after you've just bigged up New Year's Eve football, but I am a bit concerned about this one. Yes, I think the only, you know, the big, the big thing here is what we see as a reaction from Fulham. It's been too you know, tough games in terms of not being able to make anything click. Obviously, Raul coming back in is is going to be interesting to see if that does start to to get things whirring in the final third again. And look, it's something that I think we've noticed, especially in these last two games, is that when Fulham don't have a striker who can bring others into play and, and actually make Marco's system work in the way that they are that fulcrum for the attacking setup things are very, very difficult and it's difficult to get key players on the ball in the right areas. So his return, look, six weeks ago, if we'd all been here being like, wow, Raul's back, that'll be the difference against Arsenal, you would have been calling for the men in white coats. So it does, you know, these are the ways and the ups and downs of football. But I do think that having him back and Fulham in need of some sort of response to try and galvanise the fan base after two very frustrating results is always going to be a little bit difficult. Um, but it does mean that there is, you know, things on the line to play for. Obviously, you're always looking at these things. We're on our six points in front of the relegation zone. I don't think it's going to be the end of days, but there are teams below us starting to whir a little bit. And that's the, you know, that's extra motivation to try and turn things around. As you say, I don't know if that results, you know, in a result, but the performance has to improve here because the last two games, I think, have frustrated everyone, not least the players on the pitch and Marco Silva, to almost the nth degree. Uh, for Dan, Arsenal will have two days uh, fewer rest uh, for this. They play uh, West Ham on Thursday evening, which is always a benefit, although this is definitely a team that is used to uh, playing uh, with short turnarounds, unlike this Fulham side that seems to be withering under the uh, pressure of playing a few midweek games uh, in a row. And, and Arsenal have actually had a slightly checkered few weeks they've mostly been pulling out results but there's been a few draws here or there there was a very iffy game at Luton which they won 4-3 which is an amazing win in the end but they uh, they made very hard work of it um lost 1-0 at Villa which is, which is obviously no no disgrace and a lot of their wins have just been by a goal or so you know there was the win at Brentford that re- required a 90th minute winner what I'm trying to say here this isn't an Arsenal steamrollering teams but obviously they well, we're top of the league going into this match day for a reason. Well, I mean, and they can steamroll the teams. And I'm, you know, if I'm caught between the optimist in you, Sammy, and the pessimist in Jack, then, you know, my, perhaps my work here is done. Um, <laughs> I, guess, I guess what I'm trying to say is they, they possess all the technical ability to, be, to give us a real hammering. Um, and therefore, that's why you need to take this time. And we have got a little, little bit of a breather um into this match and you have to we, but we have the template of how you can frustrate and surprise Arsenal from earlier in the season and we will have Raul Jimenez back and you know I've been a long standing admirer of his for a long long time um even if it's taken a bit of time for him to sort of transition into the way we play. And we've also had to change the way we play to get the best out of him. But I think actually we can, we are, I'm confident we can create chances because Arsenal will just take more risks on the ball. They do, you know, oftentimes their fullbacks aren't in the positions that you would expect fullbacks to be in. Ours are 
either, but for very different reasons. Um, <laughs> now, I, I think the lesson you learn from sort of being beaten up a little bit by Burnley and Bournemouth is you probably need to be a bit more combative in in central midfield. Um, so and. Uh, and there's an, uh, there's, a, there's probably a place for Harrison Reed in, in your starting eleven. You'll hope that William will not only be fit again to participate, but he'll also be motivated because he didn't enjoy the best of spells against Arsenal. But I think we have shown that we can um, use the ball effectively against better sides. And the one thing that I know really frustrates Marco Silva and really gets me is that even when we played really well under Silva, and in recent years, we've not really put a performance together and got a result against the top side. You know, we do seem to have this kind of mental block, whatever it is, against a sort of top four or top six. Like we can play well, but we can't get a result. Um, you don't put Manchester United in that bracket anymore, but that result against Manchester United sort of typified um, what we're talking about. We pushed these teams quite a long way, it's time for us to show again what we can do. And I think if people are sort of looking at our form and, and saying, well, what on earth are Fulham? This is an opportunity for us to show that with a revised game plan, with a couple of tweaks, we can uh, flourish or at least push the top teams all the way. There's no reason why we why we can't. Um, the players should have motivation to, to deliver it. And some of those players who... Um, haven't been pulling up trees, you know, they, they're going to need to put a performance in because, you know, we're not far off a couple of very big games. It's the start of our FA Cup run, which I always hope every year is going to deliver us something in the FA Cup. And I'm left regularly disappointed, although I hope we can get past at least a third round uh, this time. And of course, you've got those two big games um, in the League Cup. And that's an important point to to emphasise, we haven't become a bad team overnight. We have, re- you know, we have reached the League Cup semi-finals. We do have some talent at our disposal. We've just got to fight through the sort of grind of this period and reproduce the level of performance that that, that we've done and consistently found um, over the over our last sort of year and a half in in the Premier League. Um, Jack, just looking at this from a Fulham lineup point of view, I think that um, one of the things that we did so well at the Emirates was our fullbacks um, up against the kind of threat on the wings that Arsenal possess in, in Saka and Martinelli. Anthony Robinson did a brilliant job of Akaya Saka and Kenny Tete did an even better job of Martinelli, who had absolutely nothing in that game. Now, Kenny Tete did not have a game to write home about um, against Bournemouth at all. Um but that's going to be surely crucial. And for me, you've got to keep Kenny Tete in the side. I think we can all accept that probably Harrison Reed back in the, uh, in the, in the eight position seems like a, a no brainer given the problems of the last two games. Um, and also when looking at Fulham, I, I wonder how we can put David Rea under some, under some pressure because we know that uh, he's not been the most convincing since joining the Gunners. No, and I think that a lot of that revolves around getting crosses into the right areas and and actually, you know, pushing him, getting set pieces on the money. These are the the plays that have caused Arsenal issues across the course of this season, and especially David Raya. Now we know that he's got a history of not having the best games when it comes to to playing against Fulham, which is also enjoyable. But I, I think that you know there is a thing here where. If Pereira starts, and I imagine he will because he always starts, in those set pieces and those deliveries from corners and free kicks in attacking thirds need to be on the keeper and, and, and pushing him into making difficult decisions as to whether to come or go because that's where he struggled in terms of a command of his area, I think, this year. So there is that to, to play on. I think you're right, especially considering the makeup of Arsenal's midfield three. I don't think there's going to be much change from Arteta in terms of what he does there. It's been Rice, Havertz and Erdegaard in those three positions for the entire setup. And I think if Fulham are going to try and combat that, then there needs to be two players who are playing against, you know, directly up against those two number eights who are going to try and bomb forward and control the game. So I think that there's there's work to be done in terms of shifting that midfield around did feel like this Bournemouth game was, you know, as we as we mentioned, maybe a, a step too far in the minutes and the legs on, on TC. So it might be worth just giving him that rest and allowing him to recuperate before we get into this big 
section of, of FA, FA Cup, League Cup, Premier League fixtures, which all are, are very key, as Dan says, I think it has to have more bite in the midfield. The dogs of war set up, as MJG once said. It just needs a little bit of a, a fight in there in this kind of game. And then try to pin those wingers by getting the attacking fullbacks into the right area. Anthony Robinson in particular, it's going to be another intriguing clash with Saka, whose defensive work rate is brilliant. So you look at that side of things and, and trying to make sure that those wingers are closed down. It, it makes most sense for me to go for a, a defensively minded pivot at the bottom of this Fulham midfield. And with Raul back in there, you kind of hope that Willian comes back in with a point to prove if he can be fit again for this one. He's, you know, we've, we've seen him deliver you know, on the cottage pitch with Arsenal and Fulham on the pitch before. Unfortunately, he was in the wrong colour shirt at that time. Hopefully, he'll be able to, uh, to win back some, uh, some favour and curry some support with a, with a performance going the other way. Yeah, fingers crossed we can uh, get at least a good reaction uh, on uh, New Year's Eve against Arsenal. We'll take another break there. Afterwards, we'll get into some of your emails and discuss the FST's minutes from the club meeting in December. Part three of the Fulhamish podcast. It's Sammy here with Jack and Dan. We're going to go through a couple of your emails in just a second. But uh, first of all, wanted to kind of build on some of the conversation that um, the lads had on the Christmas Eve podcast about uh, the Fulham Supporters Trust meeting with the club that um, the minutes were released that if you want to read them, they're on the Fulham Supporters Trust uh, website. The meeting happened on the 13th of December, although uh, the minutes didn't come out until the 21st. So this is fairly um, fresh off the press. And um, the meeting was with five members of the club, including Chief Executive Alistair McIntosh and four members of the FST. And I mean, the long and short of it, Dan, was uh, Alistair McIntosh, the chief executive, uh, when talking about the the recent uh, ticket price protests that were organised by the Fulham Supporters Trust and the Fulham Lilies uh, jointly. Um, I think the the key line that's been uh, repeated an awful lot was him saying that the protests weren't helpful. Um, he also pretty bluntly, and this is obviously paraphrasing what he said, uh, said that uh, the club is happy with its ticketing policy and it doesn't sound like there'll be any imminent changes. Um, I'm not going to lie. I thought that Alistair McIntosh's tone in this response was a, a disgrace and showed nothing but contempt for the fan base, in, in my opinion. Um, you've obviously been in these meetings um, as a former uh, Supporters Trust board member, still a, still a member uh, right now. Um, so interested to hear what you made of it. I've been in the meetings with Mr. McIntosh. Um, I, I think the first thing to say is uh, one of the lines that, that came out of it he specifically references the the protest as being unhelpful. Well, the protest wasn't designed to be helpful to the football club. Um, that, that, that's the first thing. And frankly, if it provokes such a strong reaction um, in the mouthpiece from the mouthpiece of the owner, then that's job done. Um, for what for one thing, as far as I'm concerned. I have a concern and have had for a while that people at the top of Fulham Football Club are way out of touch with your your ordinary supporter. And that's actually why this dialogue is is so important. Um, we people and you know, I, I, I read social media and the internet and the forums as as much as everybody, and I'm as well versed in the criticism of the supporters trust. Um uh, uh, as anyone else. So let's lay a few uh, myths to rest right now. You know, it's not a cosy chat. It never has been. We've looked to, the trust has looked to support the football club where the football club and the Fulham Foundation are doing initiatives that are for the greater benefit of, of the fans. But it is clear that on ticketing, they have so gone so far away from what is within driving distance of reasonable. Um the club are price gouging effectively and passing on the costs of running a Premier League team to people who've sustained a football club since long before it was a, was a Premier League side. That being said, I think the dialogue is important, if only to show uh, the decision makers of Fulham Football Club that like this podcast, the Fulham Supporters Trust is independent of the football club and it will ask the questions that need to be asked of the people running the football club. 
um, for as long as they need to be asked and to ensure that there is a long-term future of something that seems to have been banished from the official Fulham lexicon, which is that we are a family club. You know, the three of us all benefited from reduced ticket prices to go to Fulham in the first place. It was, you know, our inheritance of Fulham Football Club has been handed down through generations. Or, you know, we've all known older people who are fans of this club. And it's not because we win things that we go and watch it. My concern is that the ticketing decisions and revenue decisions are made by people who are thousands of miles away don't necessarily understand the um, English football or the football market and view this as an entertainment piece. And just in terms of like match day experience, nobody can suggest that ordinary punters in the Hammersmith end ponying up, you know, £100 more for their season ticket are being treated where you're getting the greatest match day experience because it just isn't accurate. So I think there's a decision to be taken by the coalition of groups who joined uh, the previous protest about what the next protest looks like, because I, for one, am angry about the fact that a generation of Fulham fans will be priced out of watching their team. Um, and if this is all to sort of raise revenue and, and reduce the £40 million a year loss that the ownership makes, this is not going to touch the sides of that. You know, putting ticket prices up to whatever you want to do um, is not going to suddenly make us a profitable Premier League club. You're going to have to look other elsewhere in the operating model to to make us more sustainable in the longer term. So we're all sort of, the club are sort of usefully talking past the pertinent issue, which is that if you give fans a voice, if you give fans a stake in the running of their football club, um, we can work together to offer other additional streams of revenue and to create the kind of atmosphere that Marco Silva has been a fan of. And, and you, but you can't have both. You can't price out the fans and, you know, make Craven Cottage a fortress. And you also can't expect loyal supporters to stand by while they're priced out of going and seeing the thing that they love. I mean, Jack, I think when I read these um, minutes, I, one thing to say, like, look, we hear you, but not much is going to change. I think we'd have all still been angry, but, and look, these are club minutes and they are agreed um, between the trust and the club. That's part of the memorandum of understanding that's between the two. So the club did sign off um, these minutes. The, the, the tone and the contempt with which Alistair McIntosh in particular comes across, I thought was, was awful. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You know, the the question over whether this is representative wider wider fan base on on pricing and saying, oh, we've had many expressions of support about like one. Has anyone ever emailed to be like, oh, thanks very much for for increasing Raising the ticket prices. prices? That that doesn't seem like a, a sensible or you know normal thing to do. You know, it's one of those internet memes. It was like, oh, I asked my landlord to increase my rent and help me grind harder. Are you sure? It it, it felt like. You're looking at it and going, well, surely that's just not a thing, is it? Like, surely that isn't that isn't how this has worked. But also, there's some really like weird things in here. It was like, wow, attendances for lower price games were were lower than for higher price games. Yeah, well, of, of course they were. Like you're looking at this because what you're selling is 200 fans, you know, of, of Manchester United in the home end. Like, of course they're selling out less. Like this is bizarre in terms of what it's trying to achieve. And then, you know, you're talking about these things like the cheaper family blocks were often the last to sell out. But like, of course, like that's, that's so natural in terms of, I can't but don't buy you also a need a child to <laughs> go into those sections. I can't buy a ticket in a cheaper family. In, in theory, yeah. Yeah, yeah, in theory, yeah. Unless I literally get a kid with me to come to Fulham. Oh, um, That's illegal, Sammy. You can't be doing that. No, you're right, yeah. <laughs> we <laughs> might be straying into dangerous territory here. <laughs> Carry on, Jack. You know, the point is that we're, we're talking about, that's just logistics, right? That You're not talking about being like, oh, yeah, if these games are cheaper, they, they'll sell less tickets. That's an insane kind of way to look at this as a setup. It's, it's as you say, Sammy, it's holding supporters in contempt. It's like... Having a conversation and being like, no, you guys just don't understand. Like, well, I understand how this works. And look, I might not be an, you know, a, an expert in, in finances and, and ticketing prices and what that does for the club finances, but I do know enough about the game and also about ticketing across football in general to know that that is not 
the difference between clubs being profitable, as Dan says, and not being profitable. It's a drop in the ocean compared to what we're talking about in regards to TV deals, sponsorship deals, all of the above. And to basically be like, nah, this is working because we're selling 200 tickets to Manchester United fans in the home end and the atmosphere is therefore dying because of it is absolutely insane. It's insanity to suggest that that as a model is currently working after what we've experienced as fans in the last three, four months alone. So I completely agree. It's so, so out of touch with the feeling around the fan base. And I'm not sitting here saying everyone is well in support of both. I know they're not. And that's fine. And people have differing opinions on these things. And that's okay. But if they're sitting here going, the atmosphere is better. It doesn't matter who we sell these tickets to. They're lying to themselves. And if that's what they want to do and, you know, pull the wool over their eyes and do it, then fine. But ultimately, to actually release that and suggest that that is working, I think is an insult to the fan base. You're not wrong. And I think there's also an opportunity, but there is an opportunity here by the complacency that's exhibited through what we're discussing and the events of the last month. Because not only are the club, um, because because I, I believe, you know, I don't believe that's Mr. McIntosh acting on his own. Uh, there will have been some consultation with the ownership about how they want to respond to this. They haven't responded formally to to letters and and other entreaties, which is why a protest was necessary. But there is an opportunity for the fan base here because, as Jack alludes to, you know, Mr. McIntosh is quite clear about refer- wondering whether the the trust and the other organisations are representative of the wider Fulham fan base. Well, you know, I, I think we've got a fairly hefty demonstration of the level of support for a protest amongst the people attending that Manchester United fixture. And remember, those people are protesting about ticket pricing, having already been able to afford a ticket. So you're effectively asking the very people who are able to pay for the tickets to protest on behalf of people who may not be able to, which is not the easiest thing to do. You know, I recognise that not everyone is in support of protest and that things like the Supporters Trust are dry and procedural and, you know, I hesitate to say it, potentially political in nature for your average football fan. But the game is at a tipping point here and we do have an opportunity as fans to influence um, the way forward through an independent regulator and through the associated supporters groups that are carrying on this dialogue and becoming a little bit more militant. So I would just say to people, even though I'm no longer on the board of the Fulham Supporters Trust, it is a good organisation. It does ask tough questions. The procedure and the and the mechanisms through which the trust does it are not always. We're not. They're not. Always, we're not always able to ask it as fervently as people might wish. We understand all of that. But there is an opportunity for people to join the trust, show their support for these types of campaigns and indeed for wider fan participation in the running of football clubs because that's the only way that we're going to achieve some of these things that need to be changed through collective action, um, even if the means of getting there might be different at each individual football club. Yeah, no, hundred percent, and um, I, I really am interested to see the uh, the next steps. Um, Simon Duke, uh, the chair of the Problems Sports Trust, uh, will come on at some point uh, in the new year when there is uh, a little bit less uh, fixture congestion, and once Christmas is out of the way, I know there are plans afoot uh, for more demonstrations. I know that um, some more flags have been purchased by the Fulham Supporters Trust, um, and more, you know, countless small steps that can be taken and will be taken after this uh, in order to uh, send uh, those unhelpful messages uh, to the club. Just before we go, let's do uh, a couple of emails. This first one uh, from Timothy Higgins uh, in Boston, USA said, Hi, fellas. I saw that part of Liverpool's renovated stand has recently been completed. And given that the same development company is doing the Riverside, I wonder if that means we can expect some progress at Craven Cottage. I believe the delays to both Liverpool stand and the Riverside were because the developers uh, were in receivership. But is this a sign that there could be a resolution on the horizon? Now, as far as I understand, Dan, um, 
the Buckingham Group, which did build both of the stands going bust, didn't really affect Fulham too much because we were already in the fit-out process. I don't think there's any real correlation between Liverpool finishing their stand and the time that it will take Fulham um, to finish theirs. As far as I understand, the start date is still August. Um, I still just feel weird amongst all of this and all of the, the ticket prices and all of this argument that there's still a full stand to be opened next year. And, and I almost could understand the higher prices a bit more if there was a finished Riverside stand and you had everything set out. But the transition to do this so highly in the transition stage that we're still at when it comes to Craven Cottage is a is a bit odd. And, and that atmosphere, I still believe, is it's, I know that the Riverside would never add a load of vociferous sport, support, but I do believe those big, large, empty swathes at Craven Cottage don't help the atmosphere, do they? Yeah, so there's quite a few questions in there. Um, let me try and sorry take take. No, it's all right, and it's always good to hear from from uh, interested uh, international supporters. Certainly, and I know your your podcast brings them a lot closer to to Fulham. So so that's absolutely to be applauded. Just on the correlation between between Liverpool and Fulham, I mean the the Buckingham Group were a substantial um, element of the building and and, and work process to do with the stand. So it was a blow. What Liverpool have done is recommissioned people to to take up that work at, at pace. Um, we're not quite in the position to do that because there are a number of things, there are still a lot of snagging that needs to be done within the Riverside structure as built. And even before you're able to open the sort of, if I can phrase it as the top middle tier, the remaining element of that Riverside stand, um, you're going to need a safety certificate. So the likelihood is that um, they're going to need to stage a game and test how the structure is compliant with all the relevant health and safety legislation before they can open it for full um, and for real. And obviously the Rotherham game, if they were up to uh, speed with it, all, would have been an ideal opportunity, but they're not opening the top section at all for that so I don't think they're there there is another element to the Riverside which is often overlooked it's that as well as the stand there are we, we have to open up the Riverside walkway and there are other commitments within the planning section 106 obligations to other facilities that will sit behind the Riverside stand that fit out is not finished yet either because they haven't finished the stand so yeah I think um, August is still likely, but it may even take a bit a bit longer than that. And the reason for that is, of course, the unique location of the site, uh, and the reason the build took so long, as well as there being some some mishandling of things by various subcontractors, is that the materials themselves had to be brought in via the river, and that took it so that took a a, lot, a longer time frame. It's not an easy site to access, but I agree with you entirely. The Riverside stand is supposed to be the jewel in the crown, and I thought it would usher in higher pricing in that section. What it's what they've actually done to compensate for it not being open on time is raise the pricing all around the stadium. Um, and if that makes them uncomfortable, it's just the reality of the of the of the situation. But you know, we we went through a long period of being questioning whether the stand would exist, whether it would actually happen. It is happening. It will be there. It should be a game changer for Fulham Football Club, um, but we're all just going to have to be a little bit more patient. No, uh, fingers crossed. That's my only hope in all of this is that when the Riverside does open, maybe some senses might be might be realised that actually maybe that is the place where we can make some back some of the money and not from average punters uh, buying a ticket for Nottingham Forest in the Hammersmith end. Uh, final email from Alex Jones. Uh, not that one, as far as I can tell. Uh, it says, Hi, Fulhamish. I have been a long-time listener um, and I love your insightful observations about our club. Um I'm emailing uh, from New Zealand and uh, since be moving there, uh, one of the things that keeps him connected to the club is the ability to watch full match replays on the FFC TV website. And that is the reason that I'm emailing. I've recently been told by FFC TV that they intend to stop uploading this format of replay due to resource issues and low viewing figures and will review this feature in the future. I'm distraught at this feature being permanently cancelled. I cannot afford uh, for the local subscription to watch full games and I'm often not able to watch it live um, due to 
the timings in New Zealand, I guess, and also having young children to uh, care for. Um, He said, I wonder if anyone else in my position has also heard this and is also very upset by it. Can we please lean on FFC TV to change their minds on this? I know it's not as big an issue as ticket prices, but it feels like a similar lack of concern that the club is showing to the fan base. Now, I know that my dad sometimes uses the kind of full match replays on FFC TV when he hasn't uh, been to games. And... um, I must admit, Jack, it does feel like something that, well, if you're paying for it, it's a, it's a paid for subscription. I, I can't see why this would be such a necessary thing to cancel. It's surely why you'd pay the subscription, right? Is for features like this. I, I can definitely sympathize with Alex because that's the kind of way that a lot of people, particularly in bad time zones, would, would surely catch up on matches. Yeah, and and I would add that if the club are filming the entire game for, you know, to then clip it up for highlights, then that doesn't really make huge amounts of sense. In fact, clipping up a highlight reel is probably more difficult than uploading the entire game because you don't have to do any editing across the course of it. So, yeah, I find it incredibly weird. I I, I use this feature as well. I, I like looking back and watching games again in their entirety, occasionally at, you know, double speed in order to just sort of analyze them a little bit deeper and try and work out what patterns are working and what aren't. I appreciate that that's a bit niche and not everybody is going to be doing that. But I think that we're, you know, hearing here from Alex that these things are important, especially for people who are across the globe and, you know, are connected to the club by elements like these. And I think Alex is spot on. It's just another sense of the club being disconnected from the fan base and maybe the fan base in a, in a slightly more kind of global sense to be able to appeal and make sure that people are connected to the club. It doesn't really make any sense to me, you know, as someone who edits videos, uploading an entire video is easier than having to find it or cl- hit clips from it and make them into a reel. So yeah, just one of those things that I think doesn't really make any sense. And I would have no idea why the club would can that feature considering that people are already subscribed to the TV you know, channel, if you will, for this kind of thing? Two things on, on this one. Um, well, firstly, it's an obligation of the, the broadcasters have to film the games. So Fulham don't even have to uh, film the, you know, put, put out the 90 minutes themselves. They're getting it from whoever the domestic rights holder is. And it's a key component, you know, it's a feature that encourages you to pay whatever it is, your five ninety nine, I think it is, for a month for FFC TV. So it's very odd. My only other suggestion is it seems like something that the, the trust can put to the club in in, in January. Um, and as a as a half Kiwi, I absolutely empathise with um, w- with Alex on this. We do need to keep that strong bond between uh, Fulham Football Club and all of our fans. Um, overseas because, you know, I'm not sure where in New Zealand he is, but um, it's no fun getting up and watching Fulham in the small hours of the of the morning, um, particularly if you're, if you're getting up to watch a crushing defeat. Yeah, that was exactly what I was going to say, is uh, definitely one that I would uh, lean on the Fulham Supporters Trust because they will actually be able to press it to the people that matter, um, Alex. So uh, definitely uh, drop them a line. That'll do for the podcast today. What a fun one it's been. Jack, what would you like to name it? As much as I did love Burnt Box's Ball Boy from Andrew Sherman, I think we're going to quietly, quietly sweep that one under the carpet. I think I'm going to go for Scott Burley at Bayou Mafia's Zero Christmas Presents. Nice, nice. Uh, what a great podcast it's been, despite uh, the awful Boxing Day result. Uh, Jack, as ever, thank you very much. Thank you, Sammy. It's always a pleasure. Dan, wonderful to have you back on the podcast. Please come back sooner. Absolutely. Happy New Year to you and all the all the listeners. Yes, uh, this is our final podcast of 2023. Uh, it will be back on New Year's Day. So happy New Year to you. Hope you have a wonderful evening and fingers crossed you'll be able to celebrate with maybe a point or three from that game on New Year's Eve. We can but dream. Have a wonderful New Year and the rest of this year as well. And Jack will be back hosting uh, the post-Arsenal debrief on New Year's Day. Come on, you whites. You whites. You whites.